and welcome back to another episode of What They Aren't Telling You. I am Melissa Floyd, and you may know me from the Vaccine Conversation podcast with Dr. Bob Sears, or you may know me from social media where you saw me cover the unpopular opinion on COVID-19 over these last several months. Dr. Bob didn't want to talk about that anymore in our podcast, so I created this one, and I'm really enjoying it, and just want to quickly say how much I really enjoy my following, which is you, you guys. I have the best group of people. These are intelligent and invested individuals who continue to bring me great new information. They continue to add to the comments very insightful dialogue. Like this isn't just a social media following with people giving likes and whatnot. We're talking about people who are really trying to have good conversations. And they're bringing that to me too. Any post that you'll see of mine on social media, there's going to be a great discussion happening in the comments, which is really cool. A lot of times I just leave it alone. I try to engage as much as possible, but then I just leave it alone and let people have these intelligent debates and discussions on their own, which they do. And I don't see that in most social media followings. So I have to give you guys some props because this group that's supporting me continues to motivate and inspire me. And I'm honestly really, really grateful for you guys. And I'm encouraged by you guys. I also want to give a shout out to all of my new podcast supporters. So on an episode, a few episodes back, I let you guys know that there is a way that you can support me on this to keep me being able to make new episodes for you with new information. And the way that you do that, it's really simple. On the summary of each episode, there's a link at the bottom to support. And it's so simple. You click on it. It could be a dollar a month, $5 a month, $10 a month, whatever you feel comfortable with. And then that comes to me to allow me to continue to bring good things to you. So I am not going to mention you all by name, everybody that's listed in the past couple of weeks, but I really appreciate you guys. And I'm also creating a Patreon account, which is going to allow people monthly subscriptions and exclusive content. So that's listed under Melissa Floyd. I haven't set up the monthly subscriptions yet, but it's a really cool way also to support um, content creators. And so there are a lot of people that follow me on social media and follow my informative posts that I put there and aren't really podcast listeners. So they might not even know there's a way to support. And um, because this is all just free time and, you know, a voluntary commitment to this, that kind of support is so appreciated. So now there are two ways that you can. And um, if you have other friends that listen to this that want to support as well, you can tell them there are two different ways they can. They can do it through the Anchor podcast support directly um, in the podcast here, the one you're listening to, or they can do it through Patreon, which is a way to support creative people that are creating original content. And that can work for podcasts. It can work for educational and informative posts, which is what I do on social media as well. So anyway, I'm pretty excited. I've had a matcha today, so I might not be as mellow as I usually am at nighttime because if you can hear, it's quiet, which means my kids are not here. I actually have kid-free quiet time to record a couple podcasts, and um, we've got some other new law enforcement episodes that are going to be coming up that I've already recorded but have been waiting on because I kind of want to sprinkle them in. 
I have some interviews with, with Dr. Thomas Cowan, a really interesting approach to the look at viruses and what they are and if they really exist. It's going to totally make you think and change the way you might look at some things after that. I warn you in advance. Um, also, an interview with a gym owner in Scottsdale that defied the shelter-in-place orders and decided to keep his small business open, as well as some more episodes that I'll be doing talking about awesome articles that I found, walking you through some specific data, and kind of discussing everything as it relates to what's going on right now. So today, this is an awesome article. So when I just said awesome articles, this is one of them. It's so awesome, in fact, that it got removed from its original hosting website, file 404 not found. I originally kept the link so that I could print this out and record an episode a week and a half ago. And when I went back to that link, it was already gone. But I typed in the headline and I found it again. Thank goodness. And I printed it because as you guys know, this stuff tends to disappear. So this is a really cool article. It talks about COVID, but it also talks about the flu vaccine campaign and the fear pushing of flu season by those in the medical establishment. So the title of this article is How Government Sells Fear and Sickness, The Case of the Flu. How the government sells fear and they sell sickness. Okay, so a lot of you that listen are from a holistic background. Maybe some of you are new to that. You're just freedom-loving Americans who are not happy with what's going on. But for those who are more holistically minded, we've been aware for a really long time that the government and the pharmaceutical lobby is selling sickness. They don't really want a healthy population. A healthy population doesn't require intervention. They don't require the government to get involved to create medical mandates. They also don't require products and medication. And that's a dangerous feeling for somebody who's profiting off of medicine. And the reality is the medical circumstance that we live in today, we have a chronically sick population. I talked about this in a post recently. We have 42% obesity rate. We have over 800,000 people dying of heart disease every year. There are consistent numbers every single year of how sick we are as a society. And that's part of the reason I believe we're doing so much worse as it relates to COVID numbers, if in fact those numbers are accurate, is that our foundation, our you know, body foundation is sick. We're diseased, chronic disease. And we eat like crap. People are not very active. And on top of that, we're very stressed. People are using alcohol to cope. They are uh, not getting enough sleep. They're constantly checking out or needing to check out with, um, you know, Netflix and, and TV and all that kind of stuff where we are just sedentary and we are stressed and we're constantly multitasking and our body is in a state of constant imbalance. And imbalance leads to inflammation. So for some of you that don't know, I used to be a nutritionist and a sports medicine trainer. And studying the body is very interesting to me. And anybody can tell you how important the balance of the body is. Because when it's out of balance, when you have inflammation, it manifests itself into various types of disease. Now that could look like heart disease for somebody. It could look like diabetes for somebody else. It could look like hypertension and high blood pressure for another person. It's not always going to manifest the same way. It could be an autoimmune disease. 
But the reality is we should not be so sickly as a society. In fact, Sweden, their obesity rate is a third what we have here. And that could have helped allowing their population to be exposed to a virus in a traditional way. So we know that the government and the medical establishment, and of course the lobbyists for these industries, sell fear and sickness. Now, they're not going to be able to get you to buy into their cure if you are not really scared by the disease or the ailment or the illness. So they make a huge effort in making you afraid of the thing to begin with. And then conveniently, they have the solution for you. Don't fear. Here's what you can do. You can get this vaccine. You can take this antiviral. You can have this medication, this over-the-counter medication. The process of selling medicine is based on people being afraid. And so this article, I love the title, Selling Sickness and Selling Fear. That's exactly what they are doing. And there really is no greater example, I guess I I should say prior to COVID, there was no greater example than the flu because the flu vaccine is the most advertised and desperately advertised vaccine out of any of them. It's given for free. It's offered with incentives. They really want to get you to take this. And so their goal has been for many years to get to a 80% compliance rate across the population. Currently, they're only at about 47%, and they've been trying this for about 40 years. And part of the reason that they're only at less than half of the population is two major reasons, actually three major reasons. One, the efficacy rate we know is very spotty. Some years, it's as low as 10%. Others, they say 30 or 40. I mean, sometimes they say 60, but we just know that that's not the case because they cannot seem to match the strains right in advance. And people still get, you know, there's still millions and tens of millions of cases of the flu anyway, even with this type of compliance. So the efficacy is really bad. That's one. Two, most people know that the flu is not that dangerous. So why would you need any kind of medical intervention if, you, if your body can just basically tolerate it? And if we were healthier, we would have even milder cases and it wouldn't necessarily attach to something like a complication where we'd have any fear anyway. It's just a virus. And the third thing is the adverse reactions. Sometimes they're called adverse events, side effects, vaccine reactions. The flu vaccine is the number one recorded and reported vaccine for injuries and for adverse events. And you've got an entire population they're recommending this for from six months of age all the way until 80, 85, 90. There's really no no stopping them. They want every single person to get it and they want them to get it every single year. So as you can imagine, that increases your odds of vaccine reactions happening. And the flu vaccine is no exception. And the types of reactions that happen are very severe. They can include death, They include brain inflammation, neurological damage, lots of cases of permanent paralysis, nerve damage. There are a whole list of things that go wrong after the flu vaccine. And then on top of that, the flu vaccine has uh, thimerosal in it for the majority of the doses. That's a multivial dose, which is what they give to an average person. You can get thimerosal free but they conveniently run out of those every year. So they bypass certain laws that are in place to protect children and pregnant women. 
in California, for example, we talked about this on um, the vaccine conversation. We have lots of cool flu episodes if you want to go back there and check some of that out. But in California, there's actually a law that makes it illegal to give a flu shot with thimerosal to pregnant women or to infants and children. But again, they conveniently, every single year, they claim a shortage. And because there's a shortage, uh-oh, we just were going to have to do the mercury version, the thimerosal version of this flu shot, because it's more risky not to have one. So we're going to go ahead and give these to pregnant women and to infants and children. So you can see how these laws in place aren't really protecting anybody because they keep overriding them anyway. So the flu vaccine, that's a tough sell. It's a tough sell. And you can tell it's a tough sell by how aggressive their marketing campaign is. It's so aggressive. Every drugstore and pharmacy had these signs, get your free flu shot and 20% off of your entire order. Get your free flu shot and we'll give you ice cream. Everything that they do is to try to encourage people to get it and they have to incentivize it because nobody really wants to get it on their own. The other element that they've been adding that we're really seeing with stuff like COVID and mask wearing and the stay home, save lives and be kind, wear your mask is they make it about this is your moral duty. You getting a flu shot, it's not for you. It's for everybody else. What a good citizen that you are. And of course, that's ridiculous because um, the evidence does not even show, there's no evidence anywhere that actually shows this prevents the spread of the flu within the community. And if that's not preventing the spread, what's the point? What's the point? You can look at the Cochrane Library to find out some information on this. And again, check out our Vaccine Conversation podcast episodes on the flu, where we'll have them linked on our website, immunityed.org. You can find um, all the, you know, the articles, links to the articles and stuff. The flu shot to me, I mean, I think a lot of people feel like it's a scam. They feel like it's a money-making opportunity and it's not necessary and they're forcing on everybody. And that to me, basically in a nutshell, is the coronavirus vaccine that's coming. It's not that big of a deal. They're going to try to force it on everybody, and it's going to be in order to make somebody money somewhere and to increase these medical mandates, which go against our basic liberties and freedoms. That might not seem like a big deal, but it is, because once they get that to happen, it becomes a condition of employment. As we see in Massachusetts, it's already a condition of school entry from six months to college age. That just happened a couple weeks ago. So every little step that they take as they go further and further strips away your ability to make medical decisions for you and for your family with your trusted healthcare practitioner. They're taking away the doctor-patient relationship. They're taking away medical rights and medical freedom. And they're taking away informed consent because if you believe these pharmacies are really educating people every time they give this free flu shot, do you think they're really giving them the, the all the details of the ways things could go wrong? Do you think they're really prepared to ask them about their complicated and complex medical family medical history? They're not going into that. You're a number. They go on to you, to the next person, to the next person. They just want compliance. So this really, as we know, is not about health. A healthy person should be able to tolerate the flu just fine. And in fact, a healthy person should be avoiding it most years. But if you do get it, it should be mild, mild enough to not need to seek medical care, which means you're not putting a strain on our hospital resources and health and medical resources. You're not causing any strain there. You're not uh, transmitting this everywhere to everybody because you're sick all the time. These are the ways we take personal responsibility for our health. 
And that allows us to actually be a good member of society, not just wear a mask and be kind. How about be healthy? That's the long-term goal. Let's not talk about short-term because if you're wearing your mask, you know, in the drive-through to Krispy Kreme, you're not really helping anybody. No offense to anyone out there who loves Krispy Kreme donuts. I don't personally. It's not really my thing. But I'm sure you guys listening are also not yelling at everybody to wear a mask for your health. So see, it comes back to this personal responsibility. And health is the true health is the discussion they don't want to have. It's the discussion they did not have, not even one time in six months of a global, quote, pandemic. Every single press briefing, there is no discussion about health, how to increase and improve our actual health for the long term. Why do people keep focusing on the short term? It's all about the long game. You have to take the steps to handle things for the long haul. So back to this article, and I'm going to make this a two-part episode just so you know, because this article is kind of long, but it goes into some really great stuff. So stick with me here. I'll keep the episodes relatively short because I know you guys are busy just like I am, and it feels good to complete something and not have to stop something halfway in, at least for me. So this article, by the way, is written by a guy named Barry Brownstein. Barry Brownstein is a professor of economics and uh, leadership, and he's at the University of Baltimore. Okay, so... I'm noticing a lot of these economics professors are the ones that are able to step back and look at this and look at the data and make assessments. And it's been this way since March. A lot of the people I've looked at internationally, they are being posted with their unpopular opinions on these economic websites because mainstream media will not show them. So anyway, Barry Brownstein. So he says the University of California system has issued a new mandatory flu vaccine requirement for all faculty, students, and staff. Now, this is true. This happened about a month ago. I've had a couple nurses actually contact me who work for UC Medical Systems, and they're nurses that have had 20, 30 years experience. They are no longer allowed to wear a mask instead of getting a flu vaccine for the flu season. Now, that's interesting, right? Because if masks work for a virus then why wouldn't they be able to wear one, even though they have to wear one for like five and six months, which is just ridiculous already. But so they're they're not allowing that anymore. So they are forcing every single nurse to get an annual flu vaccine or lose their job, lose their job. And some of these people, again, have been there for so long. They've built up retirement. This is how they support their families. Does this seem like this is an ethical thing to do? So this just happened about a month ago. And then Barry also mentions how Massachusetts became the first state to issue a flu vaccine mandate for all public school children. Again, this is from six months old, so you'd be in some kind of daycare all the way to college age. So he says, many of us think we know about the flu vaccine. We believe it prevents the flu, or at the very least, it reduces complications from the flu, thus reducing deaths. The flu story we think we know is not supported by medical evidence. The history of the flu vaccine is a cautionary tale about the crony capitalist rush for a COVID-19 vaccine. So he's tying the two together to say, look what they've done with the flu program, the flu vaccine program. This is exactly what they're trying to do with COVID-19. So he quotes a guy named Peter Doshi. Now we talked about him on the Vaccine Conversation podcast, uh, one of those early episodes on the flu. So Peter Doshi is a University of Maryland pharmacy professor. Okay, so he wrote an article, he wrote a study, an article, 2013 British Medical Journal. So BMJ, 2013, his article, and this was a great article, we talked about it on our podcast called Influenza, Marketing Vaccine by Marketing Disease. Okay, so this is the same idea. The way that we push the vaccine is we have to promote the fear of the disease. 
So Peter Doshi says, promotion of influenza vaccines is one of the most visible and aggressive public health policies today. So how do we know that this is so aggressive? Well, in 1990, there were only 32 million doses of the flu vaccine available every year in the United States. Okay, 1990, 32 million. Last year, we're looking at 155 to 160 million. According to the CDC, they have an estimate for this next year's flu season, 2021. And guess how many? We're looking at between 194 to 198 million doses. So now we're at the 200 million mark. Okay, we were originally in 1990 at 32 million, and they're already up to making 200 million doses. Now listen to this. I told you earlier that the goal of the pharmaceutical industry that's supporting our regulatory agencies is 80% annual compliance of the flu vaccine. So that turns out to be about 264 million doses is what they're looking at. Now they've had a goal long time coming for the Healthy 2020 program. Now that was supposed to get all adults up to date with all of their vaccines. See, they've already taking control of childhood vaccines because they make it a condition of school. And now they've been removing exemptions left and right states across the country. But the place that they keep failing is with adults. Adults don't want to get 30 some doses. They don't want to get regular vaccines. They kind of felt like I got my kid, my childhood vaccines. I don't need any more. I'm healthy. Don't push that on me. So they know they have a problem there. So they've been long time building up to this healthy people 2020. And it was interesting because 2020 turned out to be a totally different kind of medical fraud, I guess you could say, with the whole coronavirus thing. Um, I was expecting some kind of crazy legislation that was going to force, as a condition of employment, adults to be up to date, meaning getting several doses of several different vaccines. And it was going to be interesting to see how that played out, because I don't think many adults would want to comply with that. But their goal has been 80%. So when they're looking at 264 million as their target goal, and they were only at 155 million last year, look how quickly they are estimating a huge jump in one year. Why? Because of coronavirus. They are now bringing the two of these things together. Get your flu shot to protect you against COVID, although that doesn't make any sense because they're different viruses. Get your flu shot. That way we don't have a huge flu epidemic with the COVID pandemic and it's going to help the hospital staff. Do your part as a citizen and get your flu shot. So now they've upped their estimation to 200 million doses for this next upcoming flu season. So this is why Peter Doshi was noticing the aggressive public health policy that he saw and the drastic increase over time. This was, of course, back in 2013. He had no idea that in just seven years, we would see what a huge increase. So he says that the flu vaccines actually might be less beneficial and less safe than they have been claimed. And the threat of influenza appears overstated. So this sounds a lot to me like COVID, right? We've got a rushed vaccine. It's probably not going to work very well and not going to be that safe. But also it's for a disease or illness where the threat has been overstated, but they kind of have to do that, right? Because if they told you this was mild, everybody sign up and get your vaccine, you'd be like, no, I don't need to. Because you know, everybody knows that every pharmaceutical product has a potential side effect, potential risk for some. That's guaranteed. So if you're going to sign up for that, there better be a benefit, right? 
if it's a mild illness, why would you do it? And they know that. So their goal is to make it so it's not a mild illness. The flu has to be scary and deadly. You know, during the flu season, you see the advertisements. I mean, the news, the way that they cover it is just like, oh, deadly flu season. Let's show all these tents outside hospitals and triages and all these things. Let's build up the fear of the illness to push more and more people out to getting their vaccine. It's ironic because I'm seeing people on social media posting like, yeah, I got my flu vaccine already. You know, I'm doing my part. And it's like, it's, this was in August. August, protection from a flu vaccine, if in fact it works for you, is going to be about 90 days tops. So August, so we got September, October, November. That means that vaccine protected you to the end of November. Again, if it works for you, the end of November. Well, what happens all of December and January and February and March? The flu season. So for all these people rushing out thinking they got a head start on the game, you're actually setting yourself up for disaster because you're going to be less protected during the worst part. In fact, March tends to be the highest part of the flu season. You have a huge peak usually November, December, drops back down just a little bit, and then it comes back in March. Um, So I find that kind of funny. Anyway, so Peter Doshi was talking about how in the 1990s, when they were talking about the flu vaccine, they initially only recommended it for at-risk groups. And the at-risk groups were the elderly. But now... It's, as, it's almost as if everybody's at risk, according to the CDC, because it's universally recommended for every single person, six months of age, all the way up until your dying days. So this is what they do. When they introduce vaccines on the schedule, they always start with the at-risk populations, because then it looks like it's something that is just for a tailored group of people. And what they do, they keep changing that group to include a little bit more, a little bit more, a little younger, a little younger. And then all of a sudden you have something that's universally recommended. It's important to pay attention to these patterns. You can look at the ACIP, which is the committee that's assigned with creating the vaccine schedules, both for children and adults. You can look on their websites, look through their quarterly meetings, and you can see the way they keep adding vaccines to the schedule despite safety warnings. And you can look at the CDC schedule over time and see how the categories and age recommendations and at-risk groups keep growing and growing and growing. It's honestly very fascinating and also scary. So one of the things that they've said about the flu vaccine is that it reduces deaths by 48%. So there was a study in the New England Journal of Medicine that said that the flu vaccine reduces deaths by 48%. And this is what they're using to bolster the efficacy and success of it and and encourage people to get it. So that study was funded by the National Vaccine Program Office and the CDC. Okay, so that's a problem already. This is not an independently funded study. So Peter Doshi says that this is not credible, especially, he says, because influenza is estimated to cause only around 5% of deaths. So how can it prevent 48% of deaths when it only causes 5%? So according to the Cochrane Library, there's a a gentleman named Tom Jefferson, who's an epidemiologist and physician. And he says, for a vaccine to reduce mortality by 50% and up to 90% in some studies, that means it has to prevent deaths, not just from influenza, but from falls, fires, heart disease, strokes, and car accidents. And he says, that's not a vaccine. That's a miracle. Does that make sense? You've got something that is supposed to decrease all cause deaths by 50%, but it's only responsible for five. That doesn't make any sense. And so he's pointing out the Cochrane Library is a nice resource for what 
seems to be very um, objective information on stuff like this because you just don't see studies published that go against the narrative anymore. And the narrative is that the flu vaccine works, it's necessary, and if you do not promote that, you will not be published or you'll be published and then they'll force you to issue a retraction. So the Cochrane Library is a good place to find this information. So Tom Jefferson is an epidemiologist and physician there who has some good things to say about this. There's also something interesting that they say is basically skewing any of the positive evidence about the flu vaccine working, and it's called the healthy user effect. Basically, what they're saying is there's a propensity for healthier people to be more likely to get vaccinated than less healthy people. So as a result, all these studies of the vaccinated population are biased. And so one study said that the healthy, this is a quote, the healthy user effect explained the entire benefit that other researchers were attributing to the flu vaccine, suggesting it was the vaccine itself. But in reality, it might not reduce mortality at all. So here's a quote from the CDC that kind of admits that there is a potential for bias in these studies. It says, the studies that are demonstrating these large reductions in hospitalizations and deaths in the vaccinated elderly have not measured reductions in laboratory confirmed influenza illnesses. Okay, so think about that. Whatever data they're using is not even in lab confirmed flu cases. And it says that the studies have been challenged because there's a propensity for healthier persons to be more likely than less healthy persons to receive a vaccination. So that's from the CDC directly. So Doshi says, what evidence is there that influenza vaccines reduce deaths in older people? He said, virtually none. He said there has only been one randomized trial of influenza vaccines in older people. This was two decades ago, and it showed no mortality benefit. So it means that influenza vaccines are approved for use in older people despite any clinical trials that demonstrate a reduction in serious outcomes. Now listen, this is important because we're not just talking about an optional voluntary vaccine. All of the elderly that live in nursing homes or extended care facilities, they are required They're mandated to get this vaccine every single year. And what he's saying is there is no evidence that it's actually helping the elderly or it's reducing their serious outcomes. And yet they are mandating it. So you can imagine annual flu vaccines, consistent and consecutive flu vaccines for elderly that have other conditions, underlying health issues, they're older, their bodies are frail. You can imagine that the immune response something so strong as the flu vaccine, and they have even stronger ones that are for the elderly. They could be double doses and even higher because it's not eliciting the proper antibody response in an elderly person's immune system, so they make them stronger. Well, what happens if they're stronger? There's also an increased likelihood for serious adverse events. So we're talking about something that does not have evidence to show it even helps the elderly, but then they're forcing it on the elderly who are already sick with other conditions, other chronic long-term conditions. They're on other medications. Their immune systems are already weak. And we have data that shows us that the flu vaccine is actually increasing your likelihood to experience and be susceptible to another serious respiratory illness. So why would we force our elderly to do this year after year after year. It feels like this goes against, completely against the idea of promoting health. And isn't that what you want to do 
with our senior population who've lived these lives and want to be taken care of and have their last years be comfortable? Why would you put them in that situation with no evidence to support it? So here's one of the big reasons why they keep pushing the flu vaccine and why they can try to attempt to say that it works. The way that they measure it, quote, working is based on presence of antibodies. So when they test to see if it's working, all they're doing is testing the blood to see if there's a presence of antibodies. So what Peter Doshi says is approval of the vaccines is instead tied to a demonstrated ability of the vaccine to induce antibody protection without any evidence that those antibodies translate into reductions in illness. Okay, this is important, and Dr. Bob and I have talked about this. The presence of antibodies does not equal guaranteed protection from the illness if you're exposed to it. It doesn't tell us that the body is going to mount a sufficient attack to be able to prevent you from either having the illness or spreading the illness to somebody else. We have cases of things like the DTaP and Tdap vaccine for pertussis, where it just basically prevents your symptoms. It doesn't prevent you from spreading it to somebody else. So if you see antibodies, they're going to go, oh, look, this is proof that it works. But in order for it to work, it actually has to prevent you from being able to pass it to somebody else and prevent you from being infected. That's how something works. You can't just measure the antibodies and make assumptions because we're looking at artificially induced immunity and our body doesn't work the same way with artificially induced immunity as it does with natural immunity from a wild infection. So Dr. Fauci, interestingly enough, I didn't realize this was part of the 2009 flu vaccine campaign, Um, but he, there was a discussion with him about the flu vaccine with older people. And he uses the same argument that they like to use for childhood vaccines and doing a vaccinated versus unvaccinated study. He says it would be, quote, unethical to do a placebo controlled study of influenza vaccine in older people. And so what they mean is to have a group that doesn't get the vaccine, to compare it to a group that does get the vaccine, they're trying to say it's unethical because those people that didn't get it are probably going to die or have serious problems and we should have never left them without that protection of the flu vaccine. But what I feel is they don't actually want you to see the two groups, just like with children, because if you did, you would see adverse outcomes and poor health outcomes with a vaccinated group compared to the ones that didn't get it. But they're not going to ever do those studies because they don't want you to see that. So they just call it unethical. They say it's unethical to do it, so we're not going to. So there's no placebo control groups in the elderly to show whether or not the flu vaccine for consecutive years actually works and benefits them or harms them compared to those who don't get it. And remember, according to the CDC, the standard of care now is the flu vaccine. Just like with children, the standard of care is the CDC-recommended vaccine schedule, 69 doses by 18 years old. So again, that guy Jefferson from the Cochrane Library, he uh, is basically tying this into the COVID vaccine. And he says, is the vaccine necessary for those in whom it is effective, the young and healthy? Conversely, is it effective in those for whom it seems to be necessary, like the old, the very young, and the infirm? The answer, he says, is no. What he's saying is the people who develop an antibody response that have these healthier bodies to create an antibody response are, in fact, healthy. So therefore, they don't actually need the vaccine 
the people who need protection from influenza, who have a potential risk of complications from the flu, are the elderly, immunocompromised, and young, young babies. But in all of those categories, the flu vaccine doesn't create enough of an antibody response. So it doesn't really make sense to be giving it to them and potentially weakening them when they're already in a fragile state. So for young infants at six months, they're given their first flu vaccine dose, and then they're required to get it the next month. So they're getting two in their first year, and that's because they're, quote, priming the immune system, and it doesn't quite work the first time. So an average baby going to well-visit appointments is getting two flu vaccines when they are six months and seven months old, and there is no longer an infant dose, which used to be half- There is no longer, they're actually getting the same doses now as adults get, but at six months and seven months old, back to back, just one month apart. To me, that's extremely scary. What Tom Jefferson is saying is you've got these older people that have immune systems that are least likely to respond to the vaccine, and they're the ones that are being mandated to have it. And then the people that do actually mount an immune response, these are the ones that don't actually have a risk of having severe symptoms or complications. The elderly are the ones that are at risk, and they're the ones that have the most flu deaths, but yet they're the ones least likely to respond to the flu vaccine. This is according to an epidemiologist and physician, Tom Jefferson. So Peter Doshi continues and says, no evidence exists to show that this reduction in risk of symptomatic influenza for a specific population extrapolates into any reduced risk of serious complications from influenza, such as hospitalizations or deaths, in another population, like the frail or the older populations. So again, he's saying there's no evidence that exists to show that having a broad and strong response in young and healthy people to a flu vaccine somehow means that all these other populations, like the older, the immunocompromised, or young babies, are going to have that same response and make it effective, and yet they're still universally recommending it, and in some cases, requiring it for everyone. So Dr. Tom Jefferson says, we have built huge population-based policies on the flimsiest of scientific evidence. Ugh, what a great quote. This could be applied to so many things, including coronavirus. We have built huge population-based policies on the flimsiest of scientific evidence. Yet, despite all that, the experts continue on recommending flu vaccine mandates, and they're recommending these draconian COVID-19 policies that were based on flawed models and controversial evidence. That last line is according to Barry Brownstein, the author of the article. So again, I'm reading from How the Government Sells Fear and Sickness, The Case of the Flu by Barry Brownstein. A lot of great uh, information in here, quoting a lot of great experts, medical experts, and discussing the entire thing as it relates to the flu vaccine program, the flu debate, and how they sell this fear and sickness to get you to comply. And this is absolutely a blueprint for what they're going to do with the COVID vaccine when this comes out in another month or two. Anyway, I'm going to end here because I've already taken enough of your time and you guys have stuff to do today. So come back and check in a couple days for the second half of this episode where I will finish this article and go into some of the other interesting stuff that he says. Thank you for listening to What They Aren't Telling You with Melissa Floyd and I will see you next time.